And we got the Christmas trees, and so everything's going very well. I got the poinsettias. Everything's just wonderful. Are you doing wonderful? I hope you're doing wonderful. I hope you're doing wonderful. You look wonderful, and it's a wonderful time of year. It's just uh, good to be here. I'm making it out, weathering the ice. Gosh, the roads this morning. I, I don't know how they are now, but man, when I was driving here this morning, Jesus, behold my sacrifice. Uh, taking the back streets, I came to my first stop sign down there by your house, Dale, and uh, uh, it was ridiculous. I put this, it went to stop, and nothing happens. Nothing. Just, fortunately, the other car had stopped, and I just kind of waved as I went through the stop. <laughs> Crazy. All right, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's uh, really good to see all of you uh, here this morning. Um, well, we're going through the book of Luke this decade, and we're up to chapter 11 or so, but we're going to take a break from that today because it's the Sunday before Christmas. Sorry, Eric, deal with it. You know, we have therapists available. It's going to be traumatizing, but we always have a message that's more focused on Christmas. All of the messages, I hope, are focused on Christmas because the birth of Jesus and God becoming a man is what it's all about. But in a special way, we want to focus on uh, the birth of Christ, since we're celebrating his birthday. And I want to entitle this message, The Coming of the Bridegroom. The Coming of the Bridegroom. And I'll be reading from the book of Luke. <laughs> I can't get away from it even when I want to get away from it. This is something we, a uh, passage we studied about five years ago. It's uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. And this is the period of time where, okay, Eric, you got to quit you know, complaining now, okay? You deal with it. We're, we're, this is what's going to happen here. Um, where uh, 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 Jesus and, or Mary and Joseph have, uh, uh, are going to the temple. Jesus has been born. It's eight days later. They're going to the temple to do what the Jewish law required, which was to dedicate their child to the Lord and to have him circumcised. And while they're in there, they meet this man named Simeon. And here's how the account goes. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And this was the time when Jewish people believed the Messiah was going to come and restore Israel and comfort Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. I never really noticed that before. I always assumed that he was one of the people who worked at the temple, one of the priests. But it said that it looks like he was just a bystander who God gave this revelation to. And then when the Holy Spirit kind of talked to him, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, took Jesus in his arms, and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Pray with me here just for a moment. Uh, our Heavenly Dad, we ask that you just come into this place and into this message. I pray that you impregnate every word that comes out of my mouth with your authority to build the kingdom in our hearts and in our minds, to correct any false pictures we have of you or of ourselves or of our neighbors, and build your kingdom, Lord God. For some people here this morning, this is going to be the coin that drops in the slot. I just feel it. Uh, let it happen, Lord. Reframe our relationship with you if that's what needs to be done. But Lord, you have to do that. My words can't do it at all. So take control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
And bless all the podrishners. I, 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 every time I forget to say that, the podrishners remind me, and I thank them for that. We have this virtual congregation out there of 9,000 a week, and we want to bless them as well. So open up their minds and hearts. And we love them. You're part of us. We love you. All right. It's really interesting, but you find more strangers in the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke than, so far as I can see, any other time in the New Testament or even in the, in the whole Bible. There are people who just show up that we don't know about and we never hear about again. It's like the Lord, when he was bringing Jesus into the world, he talked to these uh, unexpected people, kind of put the expectation in their heart, and they show up. So you've got the three magi from Persia, these astrologers for crying out loud. They end up being the invited guests, and the shepherds end up being the invited guests. And there's these other nobodies like Elizabeth and, 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 and others that, that are just part of this story, but we don't hear about them before or after. Simeon's one of these people. He just shows up. God had been speaking to him about the birth of the Messiah and promised him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah come. And knowing that the Messiah would bring the consolation of Israel and the salvation of the earth. He was devout and righteous because he was looking for the Messiah. I want you to remember that. Now, there were a lot of people at this time that were looking for the Messiah. Um, There's many Old Testament prophecies that a Messiah is going to come and redeem Israel, and through Israel, redeem the world. There's a lot of prophecies like that, and most of the Jews knew about those prophecies. And there was something in the time, in that era, the zeitgeist of the time, uh, that just means the spirit of the age. Israel was in such bad shape that many people were expecting the Messiah to come very, very soon. So Simeon wasn't unusual in that regard. He's unusual because the Holy Spirit told him that he wasn't going to die until he saw the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come in his lifetime. But there are many who were expecting and looking for a Messiah. Now, the, the picture of the Messiah they had was, was pretty off. And that's why they didn't recognize, most didn't recognize Jesus when he came. But they were expecting the Messiah to come. And it was based on these Old Testament prophecies. And you find that all these different prophecies, there's my grandson, God bless your grandson, all these different prophecies had different themes and different motifs, and every one of them highlighted a different aspect of who the Messiah would be. And all of them are, in various ways, fulfilled, at least in principle, in Jesus Christ. Christmas morning is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. They're called messianic prophecies because they're prophecies about the Messiah. One strand of those prophecies is what I want to talk about this morning because I've never seen it talked about in a Christmas message. And yet it's very much, as we'll see here, a part of the Christmas message and a part of the story of of the Christian life. I want to talk about Jesus as the the bridegroom who's come to save and to acquire a bride. The bridegroom has come. You'll find in the Old Testament, at times, Yahweh, which is just the Old Testament name for God, uh, the, the, the way they referred to him, Yahweh is often depicted as the husband of Israel. And Israel is depicted as the wife of Yahweh. At least that's the relationship God wants. Now, unfortunately, what you'll find is that more often than not, Israel is not being a good wife. And so you find in the Old Testament that God often accuses the Israelites of not just idolatry with an I, but adultery. Because they're cheating on Yahweh, who's supposed to be their spouse. And when you chase after false gods and get your life and worth from things other than God, it's a form of cheating on God. It's adultery. 
But you'll find that even when the Lord has to bring judgment on Israel to teach them the importance of walking in his ways, God never gives up on that dream of having this wife, uh, a, a relationship with human beings that mirrors the relationship between a husband and wife. So, for example, you find uh, in Ezekiel 16, this is right after the Lord just cataloged all of Israel's many, many sins. And then he says this, I will deal with you as you deserve. In Ezekiel 16, I'll deal with you as you deserve. In other words, there's going to be punishment brought on you. Yet, I will remem- remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, when they were pledged to be his bride. I'm not going to forget the fact that, that, that you're pledged to me. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. There's going to come a day where, where this covenant's going to finally look the way it's supposed to look, And that will be an everlasting covenant. It will never, ever end. And then you will know that I am the Lord. In the midst of punishing Israel, Yahweh says here, I'm not giving up on my dream of having this radiant bride. I'm not giving up my dream of having this beautiful, ecstatic relationship with with my wife. Uh, Human beings who know how to relate to me, who receive my love and give back my love. God doesn't give up on the bride, on acquiring the bride of his dreams. You see this also in, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 62. Listen to this. Isaiah says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God is saying, Someday, someday, someday I'm going to get me a bride who's faithful. Someday I'm going to win her heart. It may take a lot, but I'm going to win her heart. And someday I'm going to rejoice over this bride the way a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. There'll be this giddy love, this this, this intense, passionate, intimate kind of love. That's what God has been aiming at, really, from the creation of the world. He wants to have this perfect, united relationship between him and us that is pointed to by the relationship between a husband and a wife. It may be that part of what Simeon saw when he just knew he was holding the Messiah was that in this little baby, God's search for a bride is going to come to an end. In this little baby, Yahweh himself has come to earth in search of the bride of his dream. He may have seen that in the baby Jesus. John the Baptist saw it. Later on in the Gospels in John chapter 3, we read this. John says, John says, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. John the Baptist is saying this. You guys, some, some of you think I'm the Messiah. I'm not. I'm the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. I'm the attendant of the bridegroom, but I'm not the bridegroom. And the bride, which is at least potentially all of you, he's saying to his audience, you're the bride. You don't belong to me. Don't be following me. Follow the bridegroom. My joy is announcing that the bridegroom has has come. And ladies and gentlemen, here he is. And he points them to Jesus Christ. John understands that in Jesus Christ, the prophecies about God acquiring a bride are coming to fulfillment. The bridegroom has come to earth. Jesus himself says as much in his ministry. There's one episode, for example, where the Pharisees are, uh, are judging Jesus for not being legalistic enough, if you can believe that. 
uh, they're, 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 they're saying, look at we fast, but you don't. We go without food for a day, sometimes a couple times a week, uh, but you don't do that, and your disciples don't do that. Why don't you guys fast? You're supposed to be righteous for crying out loud. And Jesus' response is absolutely fantastic. He says this. Jesus answered, Guys, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Jesus is saying, look it, I'm the bridegroom who has come to earth, and these are my guests, and I'm in search of a bride. Now, this isn't the time to be mourning and fasting. This is the time, this is celebration time. Now, there'll come a time, and I'll say more about this later on, when the bridegroom shall leave, and that will be the time to fast and all that kind of hard stuff. But right now, it's party time. It's celebration time because the bridegroom has come and he's looking for a bride and he's going to get one. Uh, and and, and now in saying that, now notice this. Jesus is making an incredible claim to divinity because every Jew would know that the one who says he's the bridegroom in the Old Testament is Yahweh himself. And here is Jesus saying, I'm the bridegroom. And there's only one of those, and it's Yahweh. And now he's being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh come to earth in search of a bride, the bridegroom coming for the bride of his dreams. The early church all understood this. This is why you find in the, in the New Testament several times, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We are the ones that are wed to Jesus Christ. Uh, our relationship with God is to be one of a spouse, uh, of a wife to a husband. Paul, at one point in 2 Corinthians, says to the Corinthians, I espoused you, I betrothed you to one husband, and that is Jesus Christ. He saw himself kind of as a, as a, as a pastor who performed a wedding. You're married to Jesus Christ, so he says, walk faithful to that vow. And Paul, later on, in the book of Ephesians, drives home the point in a profound way. He, in Ephesians 5, he's talking about husbands and wives and how they're supposed to relate. And that's a whole other sermon, but it's a good one. Uh, Submit yourself to one another. Whoa, that's an interesting thing. Verse 22, read it for yourself. Submit yourself to one another. Marriages in the fall, under the fallen world, are always characterized by people trying to get one up on one another. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Who lords over who? That's the question of the world. The question that that, that Christians should ask is, who serves who? And it should be both. We submit to one another. But then, since the husbands hold all the power in the first century, he says, husbands... You take the initiative. You love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to present to himself a bride who's without spot or wrinkle. In other words, while she's still wrinkly and full of spots, die for her. Ah, yeah. I, I, I thought I'd get some amens from some wives in this house. Come on, where are you, wives? I'm fighting for you here. It's the opposite of being this, I get to have the, the tiebreaker vote. No, it's about service. You come under, you sacrifice to come under. And then Paul does something amazing. He quotes Genesis 2. And he says, and this is, this is what he's getting at. He goes, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's an important sermon right there too. Leave. And, and not just physically. All right? Cut the ties. I'm not saying break all relationship, but you, you're no longer mommy's boy. Okay, yeah. You got you, you to, there's a new woman in your life and you pay attention to her. And be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how that is the sign of the covenant. That sexual union is the sign of the covenant. They become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul says. But what makes it even more mysterious is that I'm talking about Christ and the church. The mysterious union of a man and woman is, is profound. But he's saying something like that is God's goal for the church. The, the one flesh relationship of a man and a wife 
is a symbol, as it were, of the kind of relationship that Christ wants with his church. This, this, this intimacy, this absolutely uh, a vulner, a vulnerable um, openness and honesty and intimacy and ecstasy and joy and total sharing. It's the relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, throughout his birth, his birth, his ministry, and going into his death, what Jesus is saying here, what the Lord is saying is, is, is this. I'm looking for a bride, and I want to win her heart. This has been my dream throughout the ages. And becoming a human being, and this is what Christmas is all about, is it's saying God is willing to go to this extreme to win himself a bride. God is the kind of God who doesn't give up on uh, searching for a bride because the woman has been wayward and has, been, has, has, has cheated on him and has gone the other way and rejected his ways. God's, God, God's heart breaks over that, but he doesn't give up. He still holds on to his dream. And this is the kind of God who's willing to set aside the glory of heaven and enter into this mess that we've made of the world. He's a God who's willing to lay aside his infinite glory and become a finite little baby. A God who's willing to lay aside all of his divine rights and his divine privileges and his divine prerogatives to become a vulnerable little baby. A God who crosses an infinite distance to go into a hostile land looking for that woman of his dreams. He knows what he's getting into when he comes into this world, but he's willing to do it. Why? Because he's saying to us, do you see how much I love you? Do you see how much you mean to me? Will this win your heart? Will, you, will, will this melt the calloused heart that you have? And will you surrender your life to me and pledge your life to me so that we can begin to move towards this one flesh, beautiful relationship that I've always desired to have with human beings? And you fast forward the movie 30 years from his birth and you see just how far he's willing to go to do that. He goes to Calvary and doesn't just die. He dies a, a tormented, hellish death. Why? This is a God who is just crazy with love for a bride who couldn't deserve it less. But he's in love. He's in love with you and he's in love with me. And he's pursuing you, trying to win your heart, saying, well, you, do you see how much I love you? Do you, see what, what you? do you see what you're worth to me? And what we're worth to him is his own life. He lays down his life. He's really saying from his birth and his ministry to his death, the question is, will you marry me? He's on his knees proposing, will you marry me? This is absolutely foundational to the New Testament's understanding of our relationship with God, which is why it's kind of surprising it's not talked about more at Christmas. It's foundational. You can understand every aspect of the Christian life that we're called to live in the context of marriage, marriage in the first century, the way they did in the first century. So I'm going to quickly go over six different aspects of that marriage and show how it applies to us. First of all, back in those days, as with today, you start with a marriage proposal. The bridegroom has to propose to the, uh, to the woman uh, that he would like to be married to. And this is what Jesus is doing with his birth, with his ministry, and with his death. He gives his life for his bride to prove his love, to say, here's what you mean to me. Will you marry me? And our job is to respond by saying, I will. I will pledge my life to you. He's saying, will you pledge your life to me? And our response is to be, I, I will pledge my life to you. I want you to also note this then the process of giving his uh, life for us to make us his bride, he's also atoning for our sins, which is what makes it possible for us to be his bride. My friend Paul Eddy likes to put it this way. He's re-virginizing us because we've all been adulterers. We've all been idolaters. We've all walked away from God. But God, because he's willing, he goes to the cross to show his love for us, 
He's able to make us clean and spotless without spot or wrinkle, praise God. Holy, redeemed, and righteous, and washed in the blood of the Lamb. So he can have a bride that's radiant and vibrant, the bride of his dreams. But he does that in the process of proposing to us. Second thing, and I've already mentioned it, is our response. His proposal means nothing if we don't say, I do. You can go around and, Ben, you can propose to every girl on the planet. And it's not going to mean a thing if every one of them says, I do. <laughs> I feel sorry for you if you're in that situation, but <laughs> so some people here probably think, that's exactly how I feel. But yeah, as you know then, from first-hand experience, it maybe breaks your heart and it breaks God's heart. But see, it doesn't mean anything unless the, the, the woman says, I do. And not just, I do, in an intellectual sense. But I pledge. I pledge my life to you. It's not about what you believe. First and foremost, you've got to believe certain things about your spouse. But what makes you married is not what you believe. It's what you act on what you believe. And, 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 and so we, we need to pledge our life to him. And, and that's about living faithful to our heavenly spouse, spouse. Third, when the woman agrees and says, I will marry you, I pledge my life to you, they would have a betrothal ceremony. We today would call this an engagement ceremony. But it was more than engagement. In first century Jewish culture, when the woman said, I do, and they had this ceremony, they were legally married. They were betrothed to one another. They could only get out of this if they went through a legal divorce. And so they were, they were betrothed to each other. And that was a public ceremony whereby they said publicly, and they had to say this publicly for it to be official, I commit my life to you. I pledge my life to you, and I die to all others. Uh, I, I die to all other lovers. You will be my one and only. I will pursue you. I, I will, you know, come under you. And, 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 and that, that, that was their job. And they did it publicly. This is what, in the New Testament sense, we do in baptism. Baptism is our public pledge of our allegiance to Christ. We're saying we take his, his proposal, which is about his life and his death and his resurrection. We, we take his proposal and we own it for ourselves. So when you go down into the water, you're saying, identify with his death. When you come up out of the water, you're saying, identify with his resurrection. You're saying, I accept this proposal. I pledge my life to, uh, to, to my heavenly Lord. And so folks that have said, I do and pledge, but haven't had the ceremony, you're just lacking a ceremony. You're, you're, you're spiritually married, but I would encourage you to consider having the ceremony where you publicly profess it. And in the ancient world, and throughout many parts of uh, times in history, and even in some places yet today, when you went down in the waters and you made a public profession of your faith, you're putting your head on the chopping block. You could, and many did, get killed for doing that. And yet, that was the way that they showed that they really meant it. I'm laying my life on the line here. It was a very important aspect of, of New Testament Christianity. That's why in the Bible, whenever someone believes and pledges their life, boom, right away, they're baptized. They have the ceremony. But then there's a fourth thing that happens. And this is, there's a giving of a betrothal gift. The groom would give a gift. Now, to understand that, you need a little background. Because this is very different from the way we do it today. The, the husband and wife were legally married when they were betrothed to one another. Couldn't get, couldn't got, you couldn't get out of that except through an official divorce. But they didn't consummate the marriage right away. There was a period of time where the groom went away, usually, and, and there he would prepare a, a home because you had to leave your parents' home now. So he would build a home, he'd find a livelihood, and he'd get all ready uh, for, for the, their life together. And he'd be gone for a period of time. Usually it was around a year, sometimes longer than that. Sometimes, in fact, we have cases in history where it was a lot longer than that because things happened. But as his pledge, as a pledge that he's not leaving for good, he would give something valuable. 
to his bride and say, I am coming back for you so that we can now consummate this marriage. They didn't consummate it for a, a year or so. And so he'd give a gift, often be the most precious thing that he had. Well, the parallel to that in the Christian life is this. Jesus can give us one thing that, that no earthly uh, bridegroom can ever do. He gives us a piece of himself, as it were, because he gives us the Holy Spirit. He imparts the Holy Spirit to us. And the Holy Spirit, it's called a gift in the Bible because it is his gift to us. It's his pledge. His pledge that, that this isn't, a, I'm not going away permanently. I will come back. And, and, and it, this is a foretaste of the life that we're going to have together. So it says this in Ephesians chapter 1. And you find verses like this all over the place. When you believed, Paul says, you were marked, sealed in him with, with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, boom, this is now done who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We belong to God. We're God's possession. We are his bride. And now he's given to us, praise God, the Holy Spirit as the down payment for this. And the Holy Spirit is the one who, who transforms us on the inside, who empowers us to begin to live the way God wants us to live and who begins to give us a foretaste of heaven. This is God's gift to us. It's Jesus' gift to us. It's the gift to his bride. Saying, I'm coming back. If you ever doubt whether the Lord's coming back, you need to get in touch with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's job is to say, yes, you can count on this. And, and you get a foretaste, the down payment of this inheritance. There's more coming. There's more coming. But then, point number five. This was the preparation period where they would be away from each other. The gift would be given, but now the groom would go away and, and prepare a place and get a livelihood and, and, and just start living the married life, getting ready for the married life. And the bride's job was to do the same thing. Whatever skills she had to learn to be a good wife and, and things of that order, this is the time when she learned that. She was making herself ready, and he was making himself ready for the consummation of this marriage. They were officially married, but it wasn't yet consummated. And, and that, that would happen when he would return. So there's this time where they were apart. And sometimes it was a very, very lonely time. We are in that period right now. Our, our Lord, our heavenly groom has come, and he has made the proposal. Um, and and uh, our, the ball is in our court. Many of us have, have accepted that proposal and pledged our lives. Perhaps others here haven't. But that, that's being done right now. Many of us have undergone the betrothal ceremony. But our bridegroom has gone away to prepare a place for us. And he's making it ready for us, and we're to be making ourselves ready for him. Here's what Jesus says in John 14, and this might give a new meaning for some people here. He says, My father's house has plenty of room. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He's coming back, folks. He's coming back. He's coming back. And see, this, we need to understand these as the loving words, the loving words of a groom to his bride. I, you know how it works, he's saying to his, his audience, I, I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride. I've got to go and prepare a place for you, but there's plenty of room there, and I'm going to fix it up really, really nice. And when the time is right, and my father knows when the time will be right, when the time is right, I'm going to come back for you so that wherever I am, you can be there as well. But right now, we're in that waiting period. We have a foretaste of heaven, but we don't have heaven yet. The world is still oppressed. We're still in the war zone. We still got battles to fight. We still struggle. 
But this is the time where, where we are to be making ourselves ready and our, our Father is wise enough to take every experience we go through, however painful it may be, and He uses it to further prepare us, to refine our character, to get us ready for heaven. That's what we're doing here. He's getting us ready for heaven. He's teaching us how to reign. He's teaching us how to have authority through prayer. He's teaching us how to enter more deeply in a relationship with Him and with other people. He's getting us right. He's purging away from us all the stuff in our life that's not fit for the kingdom. He's making a bride ready for Himself. He's beautifying His bride so that when He comes back, she will, in fact, be manifesting the beauty that he's already given to her. So this is our preparation time. But then, thank God, there is the marriage ceremony. You see, we need to understand that Simeon was righteous and devout in the passage we read because he, he looked forward to, he was eager to see, he lived for the coming of the Messiah. That's why as soon as he sees the Messiah, he says, okay, Lord, you can take me home now. This is the reason for why I've been living. And now I just assume check out, so take me home. We are, in the same way that he was living for the, coming of, the first coming of the Messiah, the first coming of the bridegroom, we're to be looking for, waiting for, anticipating, eager for the second coming of the bridegroom. And this time when he comes, it won't be to propose. It will be to celebrate and consummate the, the, the wedding. He's coming back for his bride and this is where the marriage will be consummated and celebrated. When the, when, when the groom in the first century would come back for his bride, they would consummate the marriage, which is they would take on the, the, the sign of the covenant and thereby seal the covenant. And then they would celebrate. Because now, now it was official. They didn't do it the other way around like we do it. We celebrate and then they consummate. Uh, they, they did the consummation first. And uh, it was a time of celebration. They have a major supper and, and all that kind of thing. Well, that is going to happen with us. Something like that's going to happen when he comes back for us. He finishes up the kingdom work that we're, we're going on right now. He sets up his, the Bible says in Revelations that he'll bring the new Jerusalem down. That's the place he's preparing for us. And now his will will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. And now the world will be ridded of all of its evil and all of its ugliness and all of its oppression and of all of its cancer and all of its AIDS and all of its child abuse and all of the sin that goes on and all the stuff that screws people up will be done. No more tears and no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more death, no more separation. Then it will be as he always wanted it to be. It says this in the book of Revelation. Look at this, Revelation 19. Put it back up there. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has finally come and his bride has made herself ready. Folks, someday God's going to get the bride of his dream. He's in the process of getting it now, but man, will it be a show when he finally gets that bride. Amen? Amen? Every longing we have in our heart, every dream that's not fulfilled in our heart is there ultimately for this reason. To point us beyond the here and now to this future time when the kingdom is coming. Everybody knows on some level, and kingdom people have to know, that we've got dreams and longings and hungers and thirsts that outrun what the world can give. And the Holy Spirit comes into our life and that's beautiful and we're transformed and, 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 and we get a taste of heaven now and then and it's wonderful. But what the Bible's telling us is that you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing. That's a little deposit. That's a little whiff of what's coming. That's a little whiff of what's coming. And sometimes it's glorious. 
Sometimes it's glorious. Sometimes it seems so fulfilling. And yet we on some level know that this isn't the whole thing. There's more that's happening. And the Bible tells us we're to be making ourselves ready. Jesus told a whole parable about that. It's the parable of the ten virgins, five were wise and five were wise and five were foolish. And the ones who were foolish weren't looking for the return. And so they missed it. We're to be looking, we're to be waiting, we're to be anticipating. We're not to get too comfortable in this world. See, this is what can happen. Is, is especially we in Western culture, we don't have it all that bad. You know, we can, we can have our nice houses and our nice cars and our nice jobs and our nice clothes. And, you know, you can just kind of sit back a little bit and start coasting. And you lose your radical edge. You stop being a revolutionary. You stop living in a distinctly kingdom way. You start looking just like the rest of the, the culture. We've become the church of Laodicea that loses its first love. And the Lord's got a strong rebuke to that. We've got to stay hungry. That's what, that's what this is saying. Stay hungry. Stay looking, waiting, anticipating like, like Simeon did. Only we're looking for that second coming when he returns. The Bible says that the eye hasn't seen and the ear hasn't heard the things which God has in store for those who love him. The one flesh relationship between a man and a woman is simply a symbol of the sort of relationship that God will consummate when we see him as he is. The Bible says in 1 John 3, we shall see him as he is, face to face, face to face, for we shall be like him. We will shine like he shines. We will be partakers of his nature, praise God. We have a foretaste of that now, but then it will be perfected. And the love and the perfection and the intimacy and the vibrancy and the dance of the triune God, we will be included in that. We'll be dancing with God in that, that, and sharing in his ecstasy throughout all eternity. That's the wedding of the Lamb, praise God. And the bride has made herself ready, praise God. This world can often be very, very disappointing. And for some people, Christmas time is the time when it's most disappointing. And I just encourage you, if that's where you're at, and all of us to some degree are like that because I don't think there's a person in this place or a person listening on an iPod that hasn't had disappointment in their life. But when that happens, we need to turn to this and remember, this isn't our home anyways. This, is, this isn't our, we're not citizens of this world. Uh, this is this in-between waiting period and, and there's warfare to do and struggles to go through, but, but don't get too comfortable. You shouldn't be too, too comfortable. You should be disappointed sometimes. This world is a messy, messy place oppressed by the devil. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't buy into an illusion that everything's all right. It's not. We've got a job to do. Stay edgy, stay radical, stay revolutionary, and make yourself ready. And take every experience you go through and ask God, how will you use this to refine me, to, to shave off things about me that are not compatible with you because I want to be a bride who when you return, I'm decked out. I'm ready for you and i'm waiting for you and i'm uh, i'm eager for this to happen i'm eager for this to happen christmas as christ child a major part of what it's about is the fulfilling of old testament prophecies including the prophecy that god's going to find and acquire the bride of his dreams it's about a heavenly groom who's crazy in love with a woman who couldn't deserve it yet less but a groom who's willing to go to any extreme even to the point of calvary in order to win her heart and to make her a faithful bride. It's about a heavenly groom who pays the greatest price ever could be imagined in order to purchase a bride who couldn't deserve it less. Which means this. I'll leave with these questions. The proposal's on the table, but it means nothing unless you say yes to it. I do. You do. All right. I do. Some here maybe haven't. So I'd like to ask you all to close your eyes. 
I have two questions here. Here's the first question. Have you pledged your life to your heavenly groom? Have you become part of his radiant bride? Now that's not about do you intellectually believe that he is a good man or even the son of God. That's important. But see, I'm not married to my wife because I believe she's a beautiful woman. There's probably a lot of people who believe that, but they're not married to her. Only I am. Uh, what makes me married to her is I'm willing to act on it. I acted on it when we got married, and I, and I act on it every day of my life. It's about pledging your life to him. Then you're married. And if, you're not, if your life is not pledged to him, I want to give you the chance to do it right now. And I'm just going to lead you in a, a, a little prayer from up front here. I'm going to pray for you. Raise your hand if you want to pledge your life to Jesus Christ. And just say, you know what, I, I'm good. Amen. I see that over there. Raise your hand and just say, I need to pledge my life to Jesus Christ. I want to surrender. Brother, I can see that. Ma'am, praise God. You're committing your life. You're committing your life to him. Anybody else in the back? I see several hands back there. Wonderful. Wonderful. You're surrendering to him. You're just saying, I pledge my life. You die to other lovers. You're going to die to your own way of living. And you're going to live for him. Anybody else? He died for you. He can re-virginize you and, and, and make you to be, to, to be holy and spotless, but you've got to receive it. Anybody else? Okay, those who have done this, I'm just going to pray right now, and I want you to internalize this in your own life, in your own mind. Follow me on this. And I'm leading you in a wedding vow here, really. And just pray along these lines. Father, I know, I confess that I have not been a faithful spouse. I have lived my own life and done my own things. And I have sinned. And I ask you to forgive me. But I believe that Jesus died for my forgiveness and died as a way of proposing to me. And I now, right now, want to accept that proposal. I do. I do. I do. I pledge my life to you, for better or for worse. I commit my life to you. I commit to getting all my innermost needs met by you and not from false gods. I ask you to give me the Holy Spirit right now as the groom's gift to empower me to live for you because I know I can't do it on my own. Empower me. I surrender all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now you, those who, who, who prayed that prayer in any fashion, I want to strongly encourage you, strongly encourage you. You can't live this life on your own. Go out there and be the same. That's not being a faithful spouse. So I encourage you, a first step would be to come up here. In fact, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward and tell these people the commitment you've made. And they'll help you begin to get, get started on this. They'll pray for you to seal that, that commitment and help you get started. One final word of encouragement here before we leave. That was for those who just pledged their life. For the rest of us who have already pledged, I leave you with the second question. Are you watching, waiting, expecting, and making yourself ready? Just let it land. Holy Spirit, convict us if we need to be convicted. 
Have you gotten too comfortable? Have you lost the edge? Have you stopped being a revolutionary? Have you lost your first love? Are you coasting? Have you made this world your home? Oh, Holy Spirit, shake us up. Shake us up. So we keep that edge, and we're always hungry. We're always thirsty. We have a vision of the kingdom in the future, and we hunger for it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, the Bible prays. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, convict us, strengthen us, motivate us. As we remember the Christ child on, birthday, on, on, on this day that celebrates his birthday, help us to be looking forward to the time when he comes again. Thank you for coming the first time. We anticipate you coming the second time. In Jesus' name, go out and build the kingdom.